Hey, this is Alex Terranova, and this is the Dream Mason Podcast. We've been taught to behave, to fit in, to follow the rules, but Dream Masons reject conventional thought. Dream Masons are rebels. They take a chisel to the marble that is typical traditional life. They carve out brilliance and broadcast it to the world. Join me for another chapter as we unmask convention, embrace the rebels within us, and more deeply come to explore the complex and agitated edges of our existence. Now, before we get started, please don't be a rebel yet and grab your phone and hit that little button that says subscribe. Thank you. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up and welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I am your host, Alex Terranova. I had this realization this morning that I hadn't recorded a podcast in a couple of weeks. I've been on vacation. I went to Hawaii. I took a little time off and I I did a podcast right before this episode for uh, the other show that I co-host, The Coaching Show. And um, man, I was like nervous and I was off my game. And then Adam, who's behind the scenes doing our tech was like, man, you haven't done it in a couple of weeks. And it just reminded me of like, man, we're not perfect. We mess up some, if we stop doing something, even for a minute that we normally do, it can like, you know, it's like the trains off the tracks a little bit and we got to get back on. And then I shared it with my friend after that episode. And I was like, man, I just like, totally dropped the ball. I sucked. I was a terrible host. That was like the worst episode I've ever done. And it wasn't the worst episode. It was just like who, how I was judging myself. And she was like, man, you can't be perfect all the time. And I was like, well, I don't think I'm perfect ever. And she kind of laughed and walked away, <laughs> which was a, uh, which was a good of like, probably a good reflection in a very subtle way of like how I try to be perfect or get things right often and all the time. And I think this is a, great lead in. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little about our guest that's going to join us in a minute, but it leads into like entrepreneurship and what we see online and in the world. And, you know, this, the last six ish, seven years is my first venture really into entrepreneurship. I always had jobs where I worked for other people and the first three years were pretty brutal and really, really tough. And the, the second half of those that, that you're, four, five, and six have been so much easier and so much more enjoyable. And yet the journey's not done. If I want to, you know, keep growing, it's, I still feel like I'm in my infant phase of entrepreneurship. It's just like, now I know how to walk instead of having to crawl. But I think the world that we live in shows us like two different sides of it. I was at a buddy's house this weekend and he's been an entrepreneur since we were, you know, I want to say since college. So for like 20 years and he's, he's really made it. I mean, he's making incredible money he has a beautiful house. They live a great life, but he has hustled and grinded and he's lost everything in the process, right? He did, it wasn't just a straight shot to success, but if you walked over and saw his house and his life now, you'd go, oh my God, I got to be an entrepreneur. This looks so easy and so good. And, you know, he's hanging out with his kids all day, but that's not the true story. The true story is there was a time where he lost everything and had to start over and he had to risk a lot. And we're going to get into some of that today because I think the ride of an entrepreneur isn't as clear as it always looks online. It seems like it looks like it's the extremes. It either looks like it's impossible or it looks like it's a golden road of money and joy. So our guest today has a bunch of experience with entrepreneurship and with startups. Currently, he's the co-founder of CEO. 
and CEO of a company called NAMI ML, spelled N-A-M-I and then ML. He's a serial entrepreneur. This is the fourth company that he's built. He's had three previous companies, um, or he's had three previous exits, including to the WPP, which I don't know what that means, but we're going to find out. Um, And he's worked with the world's largest advertising company and Oracle. He co-founded a startup while he was in high school. Man, when I was in high school, I was just like trying to get girls. Um, I was not worried about startups. Uh, At 17, he wrote software that ended up on the U.S. Navy nuclear submarine fleet. Okay, that like doesn't make any sense to me. Like how that's a thing, but we're going to dig into that. Um, The software was also featured in one of Steve Jobs' Apple keynotes. He led teams being responsible for building mobile apps for professional sports leagues and global news broadcasters. He's also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. He's a blue belt. And I just found out as we got on, his uh, his daughter was keeping him up all night. So he's a new dad with a young daughter. Welcome to the Dream Mason podcast, Dan Burka. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Dude, you got a lot of cool stuff, man. The nuclear submarine code at in at 17. Well, I didn't wake up one day and say, how do I get code? How do I write code that ends up on the nuclear submarine fleet? It's just, it's just something that that kind of happened. I know that sounds a little strange. Uh, I was interested in chasing girls in high school, but <laughs> my skill set was uh was, uh, you know, my hobby at the time was just learning everything I could about computers and, and, uh, the early internet and building websites and just uh, the technology fascinated me. This is in the the kind of mid, mid, late nineties, um, timeframe. And, um, next thing, you know, I'm having people that are coming to me and want, they found out about me somehow and they want to hire me to do things uh, and take advantage of these skills that I've developed. And so I started building websites and then I started doing the system administration of these servers. And the next thing you know, um, I am uh, building, you know, these supercomputer clusters, essentially using Macintosh computers, which is, uh, uh, was the first company that we did. And we were sort of encouraged to, encouraged by Apple to commercialize this software that let people take open source and build these supercomputers uh, in part because Apple was trying to come, come back. They, Steve Jobs had just returned to the company. It was like 90 days away from bankruptcy uh, and they needed to find a way to sell more Macs into more markets. Uh, and so next thing you know, the U.S. Navy and Lockheed Martin wanted to build supercomputers that would go on the submarine fleet for wrote, uh, for the purpose of uh, these special sonar algorithms. Well, we didn't know anything about sonar or sonar algorithms, but what we knew how to do was to assemble these off-the-shelf Macintoshes and turn them into supercomputer, very powerful computers that could operate quietly, which was very important, uh, underwater on these boats. Love the, like, almost like falling into something like you followed something that you were really enjoyed. It's kind of how it started. You, you followed something you really were passionate about that you, that excited you. And then it opened a door 
that you could have never predicted or found. It's almost the friend I was talking about. His story is very similar, right? He did. He started a, a business that had him see an opportunity that he would have never known about had he never started that business. And then he realized that opportunity was way better than the business that he had. And slowly he exited out of that one and built the other one. And that, and the one that he's building currently is, is the, is, is like that type of uh, one, one of a kind opportunity that you get. Um, But it wouldn't have been possible without the thing that happened before. Right. For you, when you, you know, you started this, how old were you when you started like working with computers code? Yeah, I think uh, the, the I, I remember the, I must have been in the like literally late elementary school, maybe like a fifth or sixth grader when I remember one day we're in the library and uh, the, for some reason it came up that uh, in, in life, just in library class or do you call, do you call it library class? I think just the, 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 the hour of the day where you're in the library, yeah. I remember the librarian uh, saying that, Hey, you know, for those of you that have a computer at home, uh, the school district is now offering um, a, a, you can get an account to dial into this school server, so to speak, bulletin board from home. And uh, I was like, oh yeah, let's do that. And uh, I don't, I don't remember at the time if we even had a computer at home, but it just, I was like, yes, more technology in more places. That's for me. And I signed up for this thing. And then, you know, lo and behold, um, you couldn't do much. I think there was like super basic email um, through this text-based interface. Uh, there was no graphical browsers at the time. No, Netscape didn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. certainly not Internet Explorer, right? This is early days. But then what happened was that as I started poking around this thing and immediately hit, hit these limits where... I can't learn anymore. I've learned everything I can in the first 15 minutes on this system. And that's not, a, I, I want more. Uh, the, you could, you could contact the system administrator and ask them to give you more of a uh, kind of a, a skilled user access. And what that was, was where you could actually get into the command line and start to learn the inner workings of this system. So I started doing that. So I, I think it was in, early elementary school, or I'm sorry, late elementary school. And then by middle school, it was like, forget about it. I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, there, there, I was playing some sports around that time period and that started to wane closer to high school. And uh, all this stuff started to just kind of take over my free time. It's so interesting. Cause I don't, it's like how, you know, I'm thinking about that time. I think we're roughly like the same age, just based on what you were describing. Um, And I remember like that introduction into computers in school too. And for me, for whatever reason, right? Like the thing I was like, I want to play Oregon Trail, (laughs) right? I just wanted to play Oregon Trail. And then when the next level was like, oh, we used it for, um, for downloading music or like, or videos or whatever. It was like early days of like that kind of stuff, you know, where, where you would hit record, you would download and you had to wake up the next morning and you had one, one song and download it. Um, but it's so interesting to hear like someone else's, right? Like I look back and I don't wish that, Oh, I wish, I don't wish that I had like got into the tech side of it. That just wasn't my journey. Um, but I do find it interesting that, you know, I was essentially wasting time for like pleasure and fun. 
And then someone like you found pleasure and fun in the like technical aspect of it, which you know, as a junior high kid, I don't think you had the foresight to go, Hey, this is my, maybe my future. Did you, were you thinking like, was it just fun for you? No way. I mean, it was, there was no plan. It was just, it was fun for me. And it, you know, the other thing is it was also just something that I found I was naturally good at. And that kind of fed continuing to do more of it. I was not naturally good at making lots of friends. I was not naturally good at, you know, getting the, all the girls in class to be into me, you know? So what what was I naturally good at? Oh, this is what I was, uh, was drawn to and showed some, uh, some not necessarily upside in. Cause I, again, wasn't thinking in those terms, but it just, it was, that's what was drawing me to it. I think I was getting that positive reinforcement by just kind of, being good, feeling good, like I was accomplished. Did you, when you were a kid, I'm, I'm, I think about this, like nowadays we see, you know, there's, it's a little more maybe acceptable to, for like, you know, young people to be like in, like in a room on their computer screen all day doing stuff like parents, older parents might not be into it. Cause it's like, Hey, get outside, do things. They don't, I don't think any of us think it's great to stare at a screen all day long, but there's a lot of potential in like learning and doing work with technology like that back then, what was the reaction from like your, you know, you found this thing, but it's, it's new, right? No, your parents had no experience with this. There were other kids, a lot of other kids were not doing this Were you, was it supported or was it like discouraged? It, I think it was a little bit of both because on the one hand, I think they realized, Hey, this is, this is clearly going to be the future. They had some intuition around that, even though they weren't, technical people by trade or anything like that. Um, I think they had a sense that this was something. Um, but on the other hand, when the phone line had a busy signal, you know, 20 hours out of 24 hours of the day, you know, there was a certain level of this, maybe, maybe, maybe this is a bit much. Uh, so, and it's funny, I mean, fast forward, I've got nieces and, and, um, other people, you know, friends that have kids and, and it annoys me sometimes um, how much they are on these pieces of technology when it's like, all I want to do now is be outdoors um, in, a, in a strange way because I've spent so much of my time in front of the screen that now I'm appreciating those other things uh, in a different way. Yeah. And in a way, like you were the first generation that made a lot of these things, not specifically like the, with the technology that they're on possible, but people like you made it possible for the rest of us to actually be on screens <laughs> all the time. Um, what do you think you learned? Not just like the coding, but when you were a kid and you were doing this and you were innovating and you were creating, what do you think you learned in that process that has helped you most as an adult and a professional now in this, in this kind of startup? technology arena? I think one of the things is that the, you don't always know where things are going to lead. So you just kind of, you know, people always say, oh, you, you want to have that 30,000 foot view and be really strategic. And especially as you're, you get later in your career, that becomes more important to have that altitude. Uh, but on the other hand, um, the thing about learning new skills or learning new things is that uh, curiosity is so, so important. And part of curiosity isn't curiosity framed in this kind of giant master strategic view. It's sort of like, I'm just curious literally about the next thing, you know, 
one more inch of, of discovery uh, and, and pursuing that. So I think for me, it's just like, sometimes I try to nowadays uh, and probably what, what drew me into jujitsu is that um, I, 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 I wish I had kind of that young mindset again, where you're not thinking too much, you're not overthinking where your time is being spent or where it's going to lead. You're just sort of like literally one step in front of you trying to just solve the next problem or down the next rabbit hole that you don't know where it's going to lead. It may lead to a dead end, but then you come back and then you go down a different branch um, and you kind of learn through that process. Uh, It's just like branches of a tree. Let's talk about your company. Not, I, I think it's, you pronounce it NAMI, right? Yeah. What, um, what does NAMI do? What do? What's kind of the driving factor in, in the creating this company? Yeah, so a few years ago, so I've done a number of companies. The last two have been in the mobile space. We have learned a lot about you know, the, the, this, these device centric experiences, we've built a lot of these device centric experiences. And, you know, one of the challenges in mobile has been that the companies have invested, have invested over the last decade plus a lot of time and money building these experiences. But then when it comes to making, turning them into sustainable businesses, um, it, it, it monetizing them effectively that that has become that has been historically a challenge in the early iteration of mobile. People tried a lot of advertising based models, you know, ads on little phone screens are lousy. I mean, ads everywhere are lousy, but uh, (laughs) especially on mobile, mobile devices, not, not a great experience. You know, games have really done a good job of kind of cracking the code around these coin packs or, you know, sort of spend, spend some first get, buy some gems to keep going. Um, that's lucrative for the games. It's not necessarily a great user experience. You know, it used to be, we'd buy a cartridge of super Nintendo a super Nintendo game. And like you bought the cartridge for 50 bucks and then you had the whole game. And nowadays with these mobile games, it's, it's sort of like, you're not really getting anything unless you keep spending forever, uh, which is not necessarily a great experience. But so what happened a few years ago is that um, Apple in particular was starting to encourage developers and brands to adopt the subscription-based models uh, for kind of build a recurring revenue stream. And that sounds great for the brand. Um, It's even great for the user if it's a product that they value kind of on an ongoing basis, but the the entire dynamic of the space is that um, a lot of these things turn out to be sort of cash grab kind of scams where you, because the mobile industry in particular, kind of digital in general, but mobile in particular, there's a lot of tools for acquisition. There's a lot of tools to drive new signups to your product or new installs of your app. You can pay advertising networks to get eyeballs in front of you. Um, but that is really hard to keep people. And one of the reasons it's really hard to keep people is that the match between the people you're acquiring, uh, and the product you're delivering are often out of sync. Um, and so at the top of the funnel, to kind of speak in more of a marketing term at the top of the funnel, these mobile products have a lot of, uh, people coming in the front door that, that, but, but that, and so you can constantly fill that funnel. 
And so the trick in subscriptions is that a lot of people just make it really hard to cancel or they just, they try to get them into the free trial and then hope that they forget about the subscription and they don't, and, and they just keep filling that acquisition funnel and trying to get people to spend a couple months of revenue before they decide, oh, I'm not even using this thing. So what, what we're doing at NAMI is we're taking a totally different approach, which is to say that the best subscription businesses are ones where users are very happy to pay that monthly fee. They're happy subscribers uh, because they, the product that's being delivered to them meets a need that they have and, um, and, and, and kind of an ongoing need. And if you have happy subscribers, while they, it might be harder at the top of the funnel to find those users, um, the reality is that once you have them, they're going to stay much, much longer. And so the lifetime value of that customer is going to be much, much, much better. And so we're providing a SaaS service to people that are building products on the web or on mobile that want to offer a subscription-based model to kind of give these people the tools to build it, hopefully the right way, focused on a happy subscriber base that's healthy and willing to pay over time. Um, versus just get people in the door and kind of scam them for a month or two before they decide to cancel. I love that. It's because it is the, you know, in a lot of ways, it is the way a lot of businesses are going, right? It's a great model, right? Netflix is a great example of like, I am psyched to pay. Like, I don't even think about it, right? I get Netflix gives you an insane amount of value beyond what you could ever be paying for, right? We used to go to Blockbuster Video and it was like three bucks or four bucks to get one movie, right? And I think if you got like an old movie, it was like $2. If you got a new movie, it was like between three and five and you had to bring it back in what? Two days, three days, whatever it was. And now you're essentially giving me all the movies for $10 a month right? And I can watch it anywhere on any device, anytime. Um, and I think there's a few Spotify, I think does a great job with their subscription model. I, and I agree with you, there's not, but there aren't a lot of subscription models that I find myself like, Oh, I feel good about this. Yeah. Um, I think like if we go into another space, like right, Peloton has probably done a really good job with theirs. Um, but I noticed that when I look at like coaches, when I look at like business advisors, when I look at, I don't know, those are the fields that I look at a lot that I'm like, man, this is just like, I might want one thing that they have. And then I'm like, but I don't want this anymore. Um, and now I'm stuck in this subscription or I have to cancel it. And it's just like, it's a, it's a, it's alluring. Like, Hey, can you get me in for, so I can get that one thing. And then there's nothing else. And even for me, you know, I've tried to build a subscription model and it and I ended it after a year. I, I built it during the during COVID and I launched it during COVID and it ran a year and I had a, a few people, you know, that was um, but I didn't feel good about it. Like I, yeah. you know, I could tell it wasn't, it didn't do what I wanted it to do because I wasn't gaining people, but I also just didn't feel good about like what I was providing and what I was getting back. Like it didn't, it didn't land. And I haven't launched another because I'm like, if I do this, I want to do it well. Like I want people to feel about my, about working with me, whether it be remotely or through my courses, like I want them to feel like it's Netflix, right? Like they feel really good about it. When you, when you hear that as somebody who's helping people, how do you, I, I guess I should say like, do you work with, what kinds of clients do you work with? Like, would you work with somebody like me as a coach, as a consultant, um, as like a thought leader to help someone like me develop, to create something like this, or is there only a specific, are you only working with specific industries? 
It, it's not the way you work with specific industries. It sort of depends on where, where you're selling, what the channel is. So on mobile in particular, the bar is pretty high because the cost to develop applications is pretty high. On the web, it's a little bit different. The barriers are lower. So, 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 so I think it kind of depends on just where, what, what channels you're using to sell the subscription, uh, which would drive kind of the categories that are a good fit for, for what we do. Uh, you know, mobile tends to be these kind of higher end or sort of the bigger brands. The web tends to be more, uh, uh, kind of all over the board, you know, small, medium, large, um, solo practitioners and the like. So, I mean, when you, so if it, so it doesn't actually matter like specifically for what you do, what, what industry specific, it's kind of more you focus. Are you, and so you guys are more focused on the mo, the mobile aspect. The we, the we are, we're, we're a mobile first company. So that's where we started, but we're not mobile only. Yeah. So uh, if somebody's offering subscriptions on the web uh, there, we have a story around that and, and how we can help. Um, but it's, uh, it just sort of depends. I think you make an excellent point that it depends on what you're trying to package as a subscription. Um, if, you know, as a great example, um, the, you know, I, I don't subscribe to many of these, but these Substack newsletters that people are putting out, right. What's great about those is the, the barrier to entry is so, so low, but it's a way to monetize an audience uh, without building any technology at all. Um, but again, the, the content that you're selling for a pretty small monthly fee there um, is words, uh, words and pictures and the, the like, really, you know, unique thoughts and ideas. Um, as you start to think about, well, is the thing that I want to sell, is it either going to need to, do I need it to be at a higher price point for some reason, or would I like it to be at a higher price point? And, or is it more than just text? If it's video content that has a production cost to it, um, is it, you know, a multitude of things, not just video content, but maybe, you know, private coaching and, you know, some of these other things, the more that the, the, so the package, so to speak, uh, is, is more complex. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. Um, the more important I think it is to think about, offering your own subscription versus leveraging one of these platforms like Substack that kind of gives you the toolkit in a kind of a single domain newsletters, or there's things in podcasting that give you the ability to monetize in a, that single domain of podcasting. When you think about what makes a good subscription, if you were, if you were, you know, telling this audience, like if this was all an audience that wanted to build, you know, in all different fields, what do you think like, you know, foundationally makes a good subscription service? Yeah, I think number one is something that provides enough ongoing value where you don't even question it. And it can't be the kind of ongoing value where uh, you, like, here's a great example with Netflix. If they stopped green lighting new content, you know, eventually that would, you would realize that you'd be like, man, there's just, it seems like this is all the same stuff. And I think there was actually that period kind of during the pandemic where it was like, you kind of felt like you kind of had, had reached that limit. And then all of a sudden there was a bunch of new stuff. Right. And, um, and so they have to keep it, keep it going and keep it fresh. Um, and, and, uh, do so in a way where it's not that there's new content once a month. I mean, there's, 
Netflix, I don't know what their release schedule is, but it just seems like, you know, every few days, there's at least something that they're, maybe it's not new, but it's new to you because they're surfacing it well. Um, I think that's really, really, really important. Um, I, I subscribe to a, um, a at home fitness app during the pandemic, um, that, that, you know, kind of one of these body weight things where you don't need any equipment. And I subscribed to it for a good while and it was a really well done, uh, experience, but I ended up kind of abandoning it. And the reason why was that I found that week to week, the workouts were not really getting there. There was an, a limit to the variety. So I would be doing more reps of the same thing versus, you know, give me new things to try to just like mix it up. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the number one thing in my opinion is that, uh, you, you, ha- you, you are asking people to have an ongoing relationship with you where they're spending money in a recurring fashion over time. And that, so that value exchange has to be ongoing as well. You can't provide one thing and then, you know, the well dries up or, or most of the value is experienced in the first month. The, the most of the value has to be experienced all the kind of all the time. Uh, so that you don't even think about it. So freshness in terms of like new content or whatever it is, and that you're providing value, like without a doubt, like I think that was the thing that I ran into was I was like, I think I started with a lot of value and then having to keep the value coming, right? Like, I mean, you just use Netflix as an example, Peloton, right? There's new, new rides every day. Now they're basically the same thing, different music, you know, different instructors, but it's, um, it's, it's, it keeps, it's like, you're going to an actual class, right? It would be a new, the, the class experience of a, of a, of a cycling class is exactly the same as if you had it at home. That's all they're, they're copying. Um, what do you think people do when they're creating these that just misses the mark that you're seeing that you're like, why do people keep doing this? It's totally not working. And yet they keep trying this, this thing that isn't working. Well, I think the, the uh, maybe this isn't the the number one thing, but certainly this is a common thing that you see, which is they make canceling a hassle. Uh, and my and this is across the board. This is in things that are very consumer. This is business applications, you know, whatever it may be. And here here's why cance- making ca- canceling a hassle is a problem. If you make my experience, it's like the old days. If you wanted to cancel your phone provider and you know they're like well no like you you need a phone to your house you can't you can't cancel there's we don't we don't cancel the phone or it's like there was that tv episode one time a seinfeld or something where it was like one of the characters tried to cancel the usps and i remember the in the episode it was like no nobody can cancel you can't cancel the mail um, and, uh, it's that sort of, there's been that sort of sentiment in some of these subscription businesses where they make it so hard. Uh, and the problem is if you make it hard, then later, if, if the reason you want to cancel gets addressed, for example, sometimes people cancel because it's a budget thing. It has nothing to do with the product or service they're buying. Uh, sometimes it has to do with the thing they're buying. Maybe they felt like it wasn't, wasn't worth it. Maybe sometime later the price point changes or 
or you crack the code on keeping the the, the content fresh, and so therefore the you, you know the users are still interested and they want to come back and and you know come back to the party. But if you made it hard for them to cancel that first time, they'll they'll never come back. Um, and so I think that's a really it's a missed opportunity to look at cancellation not as the end of the relationship. It's really the beginning of the end of the first part of the relationship uh, with the user. I know a lot of people that have canceled Netflix and then they come back. I know a lot of people that have canceled, you know, dating applications and then come, come back later. Um, imagine if all those services really like put all these roadblocks up in the way. Yeah. That's a great, it's a, it's really, it has a great point. I definitely, I, I mean, I would say my experience is like would be dating apps, right? Like I've never canceled my Netflix. Um, and I don't think I've ever, you know what I have done? It's like, I've, I've bought like HBO for, and like, cause I, or like, I wanted to watch something and then I finished that thing and I canceled it. And then later I wanted to watch something else and I started it up again. And it was easy it's, in the sense it's a click, right? It a click ended my membership. Um, what were you going to say? And, and why, why from HBO's perspective, should that be a bad thing? Right. I think in the historic mindset or, you know, maybe a, the old, old school way of thinking, it's like, no, they, they can't cancel. That's, you know, that's, that is wrong. We need to fight, fight that cancellation, no matter what. It's like, no, let, let you cancel. You will be back. If they are doing their job in the product that they're making, they, you will be back. And so they should be thinking about their mark, especially their marketing strategy uh, around how do they speak to you even when you're not a subscriber, you're in that gap period. How do they make sure you're aware of what's new? How do they, how do, how do you, how do they make you feel like uh, it's an inviting place to come back to um, and not that you're, you know, you were banished or somehow um, uh, in the penalty box, right? This is really important treating people over the arc of time, not just in that kind of narrow window of they come in, we want to keep them renewing as long as they possibly can. And, uh, and once they cancel, you know, we're going to wipe our hands and, and say sayonara forever. It, it reminds me of um, conversations that I'll have with new coaches and they, when they talk to me about business or how I built my business. And I'll talk about how, when I started, when a client left, it was like terrifying, you know, and you were like trying to do anything to not have that client leave. And now six years into a business that's thriving and, and going really well, when a client leaves, a client leaves and there's no attachment. I might have, you know, there might be some value that I see for them or something, you know, I might like see that why they're leaving isn't in service of them, but it is their choice to leave. And to your point, right. If I make it weird or if I, if I like need to hold on to them and grip them and make them come back or make them feel bad. Well, then there's no opportunity for them ever to come back, but there's also a opportunity that they won't ever want to coach with somebody else either. They, you know, it's like, Oh, the last time I had a coach and I wanted to leave, they made it like this thing. Now I don't want to do that anymore. That, um, I love how you reframed it is canceling or leaving or ending something isn't an end. It's actually the beginning of a new and different relationship that I have. I have former clients that have become friends, right? Like, I don't know that I would even coach them now because post our coaching relationship, we created like a friendship. And now I don't know that I would be a, a non-biased person to work with them. And I think that's a, that's a pretty beautiful thing. Cause when I started, that was really hard to get to, 
right? It was hard to let somebody leave and then create a new relationship with them because of living in a mindset of scarcity. And I think that's what you're describing is companies used to live in that mindset. Like, well, if he cancels HBO, then our membership goes down. And it's like, yeah, but that's short-term thinking versus if he's happy with HBO, he just doesn't need it right now. Well, when we do something good, he'll be back. Yeah. And by the way, the other thing is not every single person is going to be a fit for every single product. So if somebody leaves coaching, uh, you know, sometimes it's not always like, and, that, and this is hard in, in, you know, I've, I had a consulting agency and sometimes, you know, we would lose clients or, uh, and sometimes you just, you can't take that personally, uh, because sometimes things are just not a good fit, right? They're just not a good fit. And sometimes that's about the other party. Sometimes that's about you. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. It's usually a little bit of both. It's usually about, you know, expectation alignment wasn't there. And so somebody comes into HBO thinking it's one thing and then ends up being something else. Well, yeah, of course they're going to cancel. And, uh, but a lot of times people look at these things, you're making it, you, you are giving an example where it's, there's the, the personal feeling about it. Um, there's, and then you get to some of these businesses where it, the, all the person, the, the humanity is stripped completely away from it. And now it's just a metric. There, here's our churn metric. And I always hate talking about churn because uh, that is, there's actually humanity behind it, which is that humans are canceling. Why are humans canceling? That's what you really want to understand, not how do I drive down my churn metric. What's the, there's something really interesting in that, like humans are canceling versus the churn metric. Like, how do you view, how do you keep you and your company viewing people as humans and not numbers or not a metric? I think part of it is that you, ju- you, you have to view these kinds of businesses more like a customer satisfaction kind of thing than a revenue thing. So surveying people, kind of understanding why they left, you know, also gives you a clue about will they come back? Um, Gives you a clue about, you know, broken processes that led to maybe why they are leaving at this moment or what's going on in their world, right? If they're leaving because they can't afford it this month, well, then that tells you something about what you're delivering, maybe in the hierarchy of needs, it's not the most important thing to them this month, but that doesn't mean you're delivering a flawed product. Um, you know, especially with one of these things like a streaming service. I mean, there's probably some people out there that Netflix is on the hierarchy of needs pretty high up, but, but you know, that's, food's also pretty important. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great, it's, it doesn't, there's a lot of things that I really enjoy that I don't need right? I really enjoy them. And if you took it away from me, I would be just fine. Um, And that it's a choice, right? It's a choice to go spend that $10 a month or that, you know, $50 a month or whatever. Um, And it doesn't mean that it's a bad, I love that. Like, it doesn't mean it's a bad product. It doesn't mean you have a bad consulting agency or you're a bad coach, right? There's something might be going on over there that the person just isn't able to get past at that time for whatever reason, right? They, they're not able to see a possibility. So they have to choose. Um, what's the, uh, most challenging thing for you about being the leader of a company or building a company? 
I think it's always so you, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, how doing a number of these, like, it's just like certain things get easier. And I, I kind of find the opposite is true to some degree. It's like, this is, this is my fourth company and certain things are easier, but then certain things are a lot harder. There's a lot more expectations. Uh, there's, uh, you know, especially if you've had some successes, there's just a lot of, um, pressure and there's already pressure, right. Starting a company and hiring people and, you know, generating revenue. I mean, raising money, all those things is already enough pressure, let alone uh, the pressure of feeling like there's some track record or some, you know, proof points um, that you have to kind of maintain. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's most challenging to, uh, to, let's put it this way. The, the burden of command in a company, uh, is a real thing. Like it's lonely at the top. You hear that, uh, a lot. Um, for me, I've never, it's, it's, even though I know this lesson, it's never gotten easier for me to share the burden across the organization well. So there's, I want to protect the team. It's a natural instinct. I want to I want to own more of the stressors if I can, so that the team can focus. Um, but that's a real disservice because um, if you let people in, you find that they they want to help. People want to help. Uh, sometimes there's solutions you're not thinking about because you're in kind of that fog of war of you know seeing only the acute problem you're trying to solve. And so, um, having done this now four times, I still find it hard to thread the needle of, of, of how much information is too much information for, for the organization, um, how to share the kind of stress, the, the, the key stressors, which really have generally revolve around things like, um, financing or, you know, money in the bank, financing, uh, uh, personnel issues. Those are usually the, the big ticket items when it comes to, worry and angst. Um, and, uh, you just have to be able to spread that out as much as you can. And it's really, really, really challenging. What do you most want entrepreneurs like new entrepreneurs to be ready for prepared for? No. Well, um, it, the other thing too, and this is the thing that gets harder when you get older and have done this a little bit more often or having done it multiple times, but um, I think it's really, you said it at the beginning about, you know, you're talking about, we were talking about my kind of early days and the nuclear submarine. And it's just like, I fell into these opportunities. And the, the flip side of that is that like, when you get, so something happens where you just, you have more knowledge, you have more experience. And so you start to kind of, there's this thing that happens in your brain where you you're thinking about path A or path B or like, Hey, I need to do this next thing. Uh, or can I do this next thing? And then you start to kind of self limit. You start to like shut yourself down 
uh, and say, oh no, that that's not a viable path because, or nah, that's going to be, you know, like, I'm not going to be good at that. Or, you know, great example, not, not related to work is that, you know, I remember the first time I, I'd wanted to try Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'd never done anything like it. I just was intrigued by it. And I remember driving to the academy. I, I picked the place closest to my home. So I would not have the excuse of it's too far away. But then I got there that first time and I didn't want to walk in the door. I like just, I felt something holding me back and I did, I did anyway. And thank God I did because, you know, from that kind of first moment, if it, it was, it was a, it was really something I needed and continued to need. So I just feel like there's a lot of back to your, your point earlier about how there is either a lot of success out there that you see a, a kind of the chatter on the socials or, or it's the, or entrepreneurship is the hardest thing possible. And there's kind of never, that's the story of that middle ground. I think a lot of what that does is it creates this, this binary relationship where we, we self limit ourselves often um, before we even really get going uh, before we even really get going. I mean, we just, as our company is a great example recently. I mean, we just closed our, our largest deal in the history of our company and we're three years into this. And if I had decided a year in that, man, there's just, this is just, eh, just not quite enough action fast enough. Um, then I wouldn't have gotten, I wouldn't have helped us get to this point where now we were closing our largest deal ever. So, um, Sometimes you just, you have to, you're, you're, you're your own worst enemy. I know that's a bit cliche, but uh, it is true. It reminds me of a bad month for me in my year six of business would have been a dream month for me in month one, or sorry, in year one of business. And right. If you ask me like a bad month in 2021, which I would say it's like what I would consider like a low month in my business. Um, when I pause for a minute and look back and go, wait a minute, man, you would have killed for one of these in year one, two, and three. Like you would have killed for a, a, what you now consider a bad month. Um, and a great month wasn't even a, if it was like a pipe dream at that point. Um, I think that that is kind of ties into that. And it's, it's tough to remember that like, Hey, the only reason I got to here and the only reason you got to there is because you kept going. Cause you didn't stop. You didn't quit. You, 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 you kept pushing even when things were challenging or tough, which also leads me to a question of how do you know when to stop? Right? Like, yeah. you know, cause you could, every idea isn't going to work. And right. Some people hang on to one idea cause they're so committed to it and they're just going to dig their own grave with it. How do you know, how do you know that difference of like, where maybe this, you know, this is a business that you went and took for three years, but maybe there's another one that, Hey, you should have stopped it after one. Cause it just didn't have, it was never going to have legs. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is a question of, well, what does legs mean? Sure. Right. What does legs mean? What are you trying to achieve? Are you, tr if you're trying to achieve the unicorn venture backed startup, uh, then you know, there's a certain necessity for the, the, the growth to happen at a certain rate to be attractive to that kind of financing, even if it's a great opportunity, right? If it's going to take some time to marinate. Um, so you have to decide, do you want to take the time to marinate knowing that you might be closing off a route of fundraising 
or five, you know, a, a, an approach to, to financing and back to kind of the pop culture piece, you know, there's a lot of companies raising a lot of money through venture capital right now. So it can be, can be a sexy thing and be a very, you know, uh, kind of be a, 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 a thing that it has some status behind it, uh, some social proof. So, um, but I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly how, you know, other like, so, you know, it's, it's been funny in, in the, the companies that I've done, um, there's always these moments of despair where you just think this is, this is going nowhere. And then for some reason, right around the corner from that moment of despair, there's always something that changes your outlook. And, and I don't know what that means and, and how that relates to answering the question of when do you know that it's, you should just move on to something, to something else. Um, but I do know that, that, that it is, there are these kind of peaks and valleys and it's an emotional roller coaster for sure. Uh, and, uh, and so I see that as like, maybe, maybe, maybe that is over a period of time if you go through despair and then there are, there are those positive notes and what if there weren't, maybe that would be the signal that, man, I've been in this despair for too long. Nothing's happening. You know, I'm, time is up. Um, but then if you, so I don't know, I, it's, I think that's a really challenging, challenging question, especially for somebody like me who, um, has, generally turn the things that I've done into something that have a positive outcome. Uh, and even when there was like incredibly difficult moments where it looked like it was not happening. Uh, so I don't know, I'll get back to you when I figured out the answer to, to when's it, <laughs> when's it time to stop? Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting question, right? Cause I've done, let's just like from, I launched a podcast called flip the lens and we agreed when we started, I think we were going to do like 50 episodes or a certain amount. And I don't remember what we did, but at a certain point, it seemed like it wasn't actually serving us as the hosts, but also it wasn't doing what it was intended to do. And so we decided to stop it. Right. And who knows, maybe if we had gone 200 episodes, we would have, you know, become an Apple top five podcasts. Um, and, and then there's other ones like this podcast that's nearing to, you know, over 200 episodes. Um, and I'm going to, and I've changed the format a few times, right. I keep evolving it, changing it up and that's going to happen again soon. And I think like, there isn't an answer. How do you know? Right. Like, and if you look at great TV shows, it's very rare that people are happy with the way it ended. Right. They're always upset. Oh, it shouldn't have ended like that. It was a terrible ending. This is, this is how it should be. And it's, so it seems like whether you end it, you know, after one season, five seasons, 10 seasons, it's, you're never going to please anyone anyway. Um, and that I think when I, when I'm listening to you and thinking about it, I'm going, man, you just have to be good. Like, I feel good about ending that podcast, right? Like maybe it would have been huge. Maybe it wouldn't, but I feel good about ending it because it felt like the right thing at that time. And that's the only information I have. Um, and I'm not, and I'm not doing what I, it's not a pattern, right? It's not somebody who like starts and ends everything. It's like, Hey, you know, that one didn't work the way we wanted it to. So let's try something different. Um, and this podcast, like, instead of ending it, it's like, let's reinvent it. You know, there's different modalities for each one. Um, 
Dan, is there anything else you want to share with the audience or anything else you want to, that you feel like you need to say or share or, or tell entrepreneurs or people that are starting startups or new dads or anything that you want to throw in uh, that I didn't get to ask you as we wrap up? Uh, the, the new dad thing, I mean, just uh, buckle up. Uh, it's uh, There's no training manuals for that one. And uh, that could be a whole, that could be a whole podcast, I think. Um, the thing about, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, um, and I mean, there, there, I, I just remember, you know, let me talk about that despair for a moment. Um, because I think, uh, maybe not to end on a negative note, but there's, there's positive and negative bundled here. One of my companies, we, we had, uh, I think we were sort of like, I don't know, four or six weeks away from from being not, I wasn't sure how we were going to make payroll. And, uh, um, and it was a challenge because normally if that's going to be your situation, you can think, okay, well, what if we laid some people off? What if we cut our costs? But in that company, uh, right around the corner was a moment where we were going to need to scale up because our busy season was approaching. So I didn't really have even if I, you know, you never want to lay people off. I never had that, that, that wasn't a good lever for me, even if I was willing to go there because I would have just had to hire those people right back, you know, a few weeks, few weeks later. Um, and so I think that the lesson I just want to leave people with is that there are people that want to want to help you problem solve those kind of tough moments of, of despair. That was a, a situation where I was embarrassed, quite frankly, I was quite embarrassed by the position that the company was in, in this moment. And, uh, I didn't really want to share. I wanted to keep it in, but, uh, by, by inviting some people I trusted into what I was going through, it not only helped me find a solution that got us through that rough time, but quite frankly, it also was kind of a, a bit of a stress relief release valve for me. Um, so that it wasn't just all kind of in inside being, being, uh, kind of affecting me in all the ways. And so I just think, you know, they, they tell you get advisors and, 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 and have, you know, and you're having investors and you have, you know, hire good people that can run parts of your company and all these different things. But like kind of what you need in entrepreneurship is you need friends and friends that don't, aren't so tied to the business, but they're just tied, they're tied to you and they, um, and sometimes that's where you'll get the most support. Um, and, uh, so I just think that don't, it, I, I wish that if I could go back to startup two and three in particular, I wish I was doing things more to invest in my friendships, invest in my mental well being and my physical well being, and figured out a way to carve that time out more, uh, so that, uh, uh, in those tough moments, I was like on a solid foundation where I could not necessarily get to as dark of a kind of despair place, um, kind of emotionally, kind of as a person, because it was both a challenging business situation, which, you know, you can deal with, but then it was, it was also a challenging personal situation. So in spite of what people say on the internet about what it's like to be an entrepreneur, it is really hard. It's a lonely thing. Um, but uh, if you've got, if you find a way to have 
people around you that love and care about you and involve them in what you're going through, uh, it, it really does help a lot. Yeah, I would totally, I agree with you. And I would second that. I think the only reason I'm here still acting as an entrepreneur and still trying to be more entrepreneur and build new other, uh, other businesses is because of a community that, that I put people around me that believed in me, not, they don't even work for me, right? Their friends, their family, their colleagues, I support them. They support me. And also, um, and also well-being that like the first things that I do every day are not business oriented. They're how do I take care of me? How do I, it's kind of like every day, you know, I put gas in the car and I, and I clean the car up and make it as, as operational as possible. So it can take me where it needs to go. And I think a lot of the entrepreneurs I work with are, have, have become successful by doing the opposite, right? They poured all their energy into their business and now their relationships are having trouble or their health is having trouble and all the things that really mattered. The reasons why they wanted to be successful are now all in jeopardy because they didn't actually tend to themselves. Dan, uh, I just want to thank you for being here, sharing some stories with us, uh, sharing your journey. Um, thanks for being up late with your daughter and, and being here anyway. Um, people can find you at, I want to, I'm just going to spell it www.namimi.com. You're also on Twitter at it's your last name, B-U-R-C-A-W. People can find you on Instagram also at B-U-R-C-A-W. Um, thanks for being here, man. I, I appreciate you and your stories and your vulnerability and your willingness to share. And, um, first time I've had somebody who's had software in a, on a nuclear submarine. So thanks for being the first in that also. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And everyone listening, who's the entrepreneur, who's the startup person, who's the person that wants to be an entrepreneur startup person that needs to hear this episode. Maybe this episode was for you. Maybe this wasn't episode for you. Maybe it just doesn't, you know, resonate, but who is that person that you need to share this episode with? I would love it if you pass this episode to one person that you know needs to hear it, that'll make a difference in their life. Me and Dan and all my guests, you know, we come on here, we spend our time and, and it, hopefully that's our gift is that we provide some value for you in your life um, and whatever you're up to that supports you. So I uh, hope you know someone that you can share this episode with. Thanks for, again for being a listener. Appreciate you. And we will see you and talk to you next time on the Dream Mason podcast. Thanks for listening. Honestly, I'm just a rebel who found a cause and has a dream, and I'm super grateful for your support. If you got anything from this, please help me out and share this podcast with one person today. You can find me at thedreammason.com or at inspirationalalex on Instagram. You are a Dream Mason because your dreams don't build themselves.